Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's panel presentation. What a great convention we've been having so far. I'm Dr. Denise Decker, and I'm honored to moderate this panel, which will discuss activities and audio description at our national parks. And I have a perfect panelist to, to cover that topic for us. I've had the opportunity to work with these three individuals uh, as the chair of the Performing Arts Museums Parks uh, uh, Subcommittee for ACB's audio description project, and I, I've been privileged to coordinate a number of activities with them. Let me tell you who they are. Michelle Hartley, she is Media Accessibility Coordinator for the Harper Ferries Center, Harper Ferries, West Virginia, uh, Park Service Center there. Dr. Brett Othgart, who is Associate Professor, School of Communication, College of Social Sciences out at the University of Hawaii. And we will, um, we're expecting Ray Bloomer, and uh, I'll give his brief bio at this time. He is Accessibility Coat. Specialist for the National Park Service. He's Director of Education and Technical Assistance at the Center for Accessibility out in Bloomington, Indiana. And Katie needs yeah. to give some codes. I do. Yes, so whenever you're ready for those opening CEU codes, Denise, would you like them now? Sure. All right, so the opening CEU code for those who are registered to receive them for this session is 147, the letter B as in book, the number zero. So again, that opening CEU credit code for those registered to receive CEUs is 147B, as in book, the number zero. So as I mentioned, our topic today is audio description in our national parks. And in preparation for today's panel, when the panelists and I spoke, we put together a series of questions that uh, I will ask each of them, and they may even have questions to ask each other. Our goal is to have as interactive a session as possible. So let's go ahead and get started. Let me start off with a question that I'm going to ask each of the panelists. Uh, Please, and Michelle, we'll start with you. Uh, please briefly introduce yourself. Uh, describe what you do as it relates to audio description. And tell us, what's the favorite, what's your favorite part of your job? Sure. So, hello, everyone. It's great to be here virtually. I'm so glad you're still holding your convention. Um, I'm Michelle Hartley, and I work for the Harper's Ferry Center of the National Park Service. So just briefly about the center, we serve the entire National Park Service system and help parks design and produce media that goes into um, their parks and their visitor centers. We do things like exhibits and videos and each of the park's official print brochures. 
So I'm the Media Accessibility Coordinator, and I work with staff at the center and across the whole service um, to provide technical assistance and training and resources to improve access to our media in parks for visitors with disabilities. So one of the things that I love about audio description work in the park service is that it really makes me think about how we tell our stories visually. And um, it shines a light on what has been constructed well to begin with and what we still really need to work on. I've worked with e for years with Ray, um, who hopefully we'll be hearing from soon, and also with a number of members from ACB. And your feedback has helped me fine-tune my vocabulary and my visual understanding of the world. And these collaborations, they've just been a ton of fun. And thankfully, I've never guided anyone into a pool of water or a ditch. I, I may have come a little close with Ray, but um, he and others have always been so gracious um, in your feedback. I've, I've just met some really awesome people along the way. And um, I've also had the opportunity to pass my knowledge and skills and understanding about audio description onto other Park Service staff through things like training um, and resources. And it's really great to see them have the same aha moments about the importance and value of audio description and how when we think about audio description, our products are better for it and for everyone. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Michelle. So, Brett, can we turn to you? Same question, if you would introduce yourself, describe what you do in regard to audio description, and tell us your favorite part of your job. Well, thank you uh, for including me in the panel. I'm very um, excited to uh, be a part of it. I'm sorry we couldn't all meet in person, but um, maybe next year we'll be able to do that. Uh, I'm an academic researcher at the University of Hawaii. Um, I'm one of the founders of the Unidescription Project, uh, along with Michelle Hartley. And um, that website, if you're interested in our project, is unidescription.org, uh, unidescription.org. So a lot of things I might bring up um, uh, you might want to read more about. But we started this project in uh, 2014. Our main focus was to improve audio description um, in general, the quality of descriptions. We wanted to make better, better digital tools for description, so we've created a lot of online um, tools for, to, to help people make descriptions. We've created tools for people to disseminate descriptions including uh, free mobile apps. So if you have an Android or an iPhone, you can download these free mobile apps and listen to not audio tours, audio description about your favorite parks. <laughs> and, um, and we also focused on making better training. So people who are learning about doing audio description, we've created uh, a lot of online resources and we have some trainings that we call descriptathons that we do uh, every so often, at least once a year, to help people um, learn more about audio description and to make audio description in their national parks. And to date, we have um, produced more than uh, 100 um, 
site brochures for parks around the country. It's about, I think, uh, maybe it's between a third and a fourth of all park sites. Uh, so if you download those apps and listen to them, you can hear um, descriptions about, uh, you know, Yellowstone or the Washington Monument or the Statue of Liberty or all these different places. And what we found is people like to listen to them before they go. Sometimes they like to listen to them to, the, to these descriptions um, to plan a trip. Obviously, with COVID-19, it's a little bit hard to do a lot of trips, so sometimes they can be like, it can be like a tour of the year, and you can go on uh, vacation uh, by listening to these these descriptions. And um, and we're really eager to, I guess, um, going getting back to my original uh, purpose in this uh, project is to do empirical research on how to make better description. And what I found um, in terms of my favorite part of doing this type of work is when we, we um, work with ACB and we do a field visit to a site like Yosemite or Muir Woods or the various places that we have went um, in groups, sometimes in very large groups, to um, explore the parks. To, to be a witness to that um, inclusion in a real uh, material way, I think, is very exciting that when people feel welcome to the parks and they feel like the park is there for them and this description, these descriptions that we're doing um, increases that social inclusion and helps people feel like um, they're getting a good experience, that to me is, is very magical. And I've had many, many um, experiences where people have told me, uh, particularly ACB members have told me that, you know, they didn't necessarily know what the park offered for them, but this description has helped them to, to uh, be a part of the park service and to be a part of our public resources and have, have these uh, communal activities with people in our parks, and that's uh, been very special. I like that phrase, um, uh, social inclusion. Very meaningful phrase. Um, do we have Ray? Yes, yet? we do. Yes, he's here. Yay. So Ray, right. I'm going to unmute you. Okay, Welcome, and Ray. I am here. Yes, you really um, are. Yes. Thank you, Ray. We've just begun the panel, and the question that uh, uh, Michelle and Brett have had the opportunity to respond to, and I'm hoping I can ask you as well. Um, this is Denise speaking. Um, please. Briefly introduce yourself, uh, describe what you do as it relates to audio description, and tell us your favorite part of your job. Okay, well, my name is Ray Bloomer, and I'm an accessibility specialist with the National Park Service. I am duty stationed at the National Center on Accessibility, which is part of Indiana University. Uh, been there for uh, 29 years, and I'm an, uh, at the National Center on Accessibility. I'm Director of Education and Technical Assistance. I've been with the Park Service for 44 years, but 42 of those years has been primarily addressing issues relating to accessible, accessibility as my full-time job. I've been involved in accessibility going back to 1986 with the first venture of accessibility uh, or first venture of audio description in the National Park Service at the Statue of Liberty Museum 
and then uh, later through the uh, Isle of Hope, the film at Ellis Island. But since then, I have been involved in many aspects of audio description, from providing audio description in museums, films, videos, exhibit tours, and uh, I've also, with Michelle Hartley, uh, done several trainings. And I think my favorite aspects of audio description is, I'm going to say it's two of them because I can't really narrow it down to one. One has been doing the trainings with Michelle. And the, uh, the second is I've really enjoyed getting involved in reviewing uh, some of the audio description projects that have been done. All righty. Well, thank you, Ray. So now we'll, we'll move on to question two. And it's, this focus is just a slightly different perspective. I'll ask each of you in turn, what is the most challenging part of your job? Maybe a challenge that you faced, that uh, a, a positive challenge or a negative challenge, something that, that is uh, in the past or, or it could be current. And um, how are you dealing with that challenge? So, um, Brett, can we start with you? Sure, I'd be happy to start. I have uh, a couple challenges, but uh, one just came to me. Uh, the one I originally was going to say was like the technical challenge of doing this type of audio description work. What's the hardest? Uh, what's the hardest description to do? And after many years of looking at all sorts of things, I've come to think of the map as the most challenging. The map is. Um, Maybe because it has, there's lots of different purposes for maps, and they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, and um, so we've had to figure out what uh, what is a map intended to do when you have it um, shared either in a brochure or at a on a wall at a at a park or whatever. What's the intent of the map, and then how can we um, create an equivalent experience of that? purpose for somebody who's listening to it as opposed to looking at it. And I think that has created a lot of interesting uh, discussions about um, what what technically I'll call remediation, which was when you take some object that's been mediated, like in a photograph or a map or whatever, it's been, it's been filtered down into a, a piece of media. And then we're taking that piece of media and we're remediating it into uh, from a visual um, media form to an audible media form, which is you know a very fascinating process. But uh, the thing that came to me uh, that I would say is like a, another big challenge is the idea that um, convincing people that the park, the national parks, are a place uh, for folks to visit if they if they uh, can't can't see well or are blind or low vision or whatever the situation the parks are open to everyone and um i just i'm I'm really eager to share that message to people and i think people attending this panel will um hopefully take it to heart that we're trying to make the park service uh sites as accessible as possible and we're really welcoming you know to give give the parks a chance come to the parks give them a chance and we'll we'll show you um and you'll be able to hear what they're all about 
And these are places that um, all of us in the United States are supporting with our taxes and we've set aside as as the most precious places in the whole country and we want to share them in a communal way with every person in America and visitors to America. And um, I just want people to feel like um, there's there's a place for everybody at the park. So that and I think that's a that's a challenging message um, to to get out as well. So if you want to if you want to be a part of getting to a park, let me know and we'll figure out a way to get you in there. <laughs> Absolutely, give the park the chance. That's the purpose of this panel. So, Ray, can we move to you next? What is a challenging aspect of your job, and and how are you dealing with it? Well, specifically focusing just on the audio description part of the job, I think one of the biggest challenges is ensuring that people who are blind or have low vision have equal choice to the information. The reason I say that is I also happen to be blind, and uh, that's a great desire that I have. And a lot really does depend on the type of equipment that is used to deliver some of the audio description. So, for example, at a uh, in a museum, if it's a very complicated museum with a lot of depth of material, we want to make sure that people who are blind have the same opportunity to skip over things and not have to listen to everything if they choose not to. And that's exactly what a sighted person does. But they can also dive deep into areas that they may be very, very familiar with. One of the biggest challenges right now is to match the right equipment up in terms of the delivery of audio description with those opportunities. Unfortunately, right now, the opportunities are, or the types of equipment are relatively limited. And it really does make it very difficult to make that match in a way that is very, very effective for the user. And I like to make sure that people who are blind have the same choices to, like I say, dive down or skip over things depending on what their level of interest might be. And also, when the right equipment isn't there, it does put a huge, huge challenge on the audio describer to try give as much information without being over uh, overwhelming. And that truly is a challenge, as people like Joel and Deb Lewis uh, both know. Okay. Um, and in terms of equipment, um, what would be an example of the right equipment? Well, Number one, I like the type of equipment, and this is uh, uh, available in very few uh, instances. I like the type of equipment that will give you the opportunity to scan, if that's possible. Uh, I like the type of equipment that enables people to see what are the, are the various opportunities, and then once you've seen them, you can get to them quickly and dive down, uh, uh, go deeper and deeper and deeper into different levels of information, depending on what your level of interest might be. Mm -hmm. It also has to be something that the equipment itself, the device that's in your hand, needs to be as intuitive as possible. 
if that doesn't occur, it becomes very, very frustrated. And I've seen an awful lot of people that give up on it too quickly and then turn to someone that they may be traveling with if they happen to be traveling with someone and end up depending on that individual. And that person may or may not be able to be a very good describer. And Michelle, can we pick up on the same question uh, for you in terms of a challenge? Sure. An audio um, description I, I think, mm-hmm. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay, good. Um, so I, I appreciate, um, you know, what Brett was getting at from a, a global side of things. I think um, the big challenge is when we do have pushback from the developers of programs and um, exhibit structures is, is really getting them to change their mindset from this is a challenge to this is an opportunity, right? Um, that um, making things accessible isn't a barrier, isn't something that, that um, you know, closes you in. It actually opens you up to more creativity. And um, with that in mind, um, I feel like that's kind of happened. Um, we've kind of gotten to that place when it comes to improving some of our video production. So it's an ongoing challenge to get filmmakers to put enough space in between um, places of the original narration where audio description can be inserted um, and be effective, right? Because, you know, if you're just able to throw in two words or three words in between the pauses of the original soundtrack, and if those pauses aren't in the right places, it really um, does not provide effective communication um, for for the audio description um, um, listeners, right? And again, I'm sure all the audio describers out there feel that frustration. So here are a couple of things that we've done. Um, the first thing we've done with our filmmakers is to encourage them to work with audio describers earlier in the process, have an audio describer check a, um, a rough cut of a video, check a script to see are they leaving enough space in the right place um, for audio description um, to be inserted and be meaningful. So we've done that for some time with, I would say, mixed results or success, but it has provided awareness. Um, the other thing that we've encouraged filmmakers to do is to add descriptive text within their original narration in the script, which I think just is good filmmaking and it helps everyone. And um, I'm confident in saying that because before I had this job as a media accessibility coordinator, I was a, a video producer for the Harper's Ferry Center. So um, I can say that to filmmakers from that point of view. Um, and, you know, again, I think even for sighted people, when you're, you're telling them what they're looking at, um, it provides information that they might not be noticing. Um, it also takes the burden off of the audio description track to describe everything. So again, I think we've had some mixed results, but it's creating awareness. What we most recently did, um, and Ray and I worked on this together, is we had a project with a filmmaker who we required to, within the draft script of his film, so before he even started editing the film, we asked him to not only script the original narration, 
um, tell us what images, what film footage he was going to use, but also to include a script of where the audio description was going to be and what it was going to be. So it forced him to really start to piece together in his mind the video and all the editing spaces um, that needed to occur at the beginning of the project before he went into the editing room. And it also allowed us the opportunity to do just what I had said, which is, well, you know, if you put in a couple of descriptive words here, you don't have to use the audio description track to describe that. You could describe something else. So while it um, did create um, a little extra time and work on his part at the beginning, what it did was at the end when, you know, he already spent all this time in the editing room, we didn't have to stop the project and ask him to take apart his movie to add more space, which is frustrating for everyone. Um, so we have an example of that now, which I'm really excited about because I, I want to be able to use this script and this approach as a model moving forward so that we could have better video description that's more effective. I like your juxtaposition of opportunity uh, and challenge because what many of us have observed, and I know you and I have talked about this, Michelle, that, that providing access for those of us who are blind or visually impaired often opens up awareness of a national park to all visitors. Um, because of, of the fact that the access is being provided for us, uh, visitors are noticing things that they would, would otherwise perhaps not notice. So, Ray, I have a question for you, and it's, it's something that I think we've talked about in the past as well. Um, in regard to understanding what it's meant by a national park, how does that differentiate from a state park or a local park? What, what do we mean when we say that uh, the, the Park Service has jurisdiction over a, over a park? Can you clarify that for us? That comes up periodically as a question. Sure. The National Park Service has uh, over 400, and I believe right now we're at 419 park units. And those uh, have various designations from national parks to national historic parks, national historic sites, national lakeshores, national seashores, national scenic riverways, national recreation areas. And I've probably left a few off, but the important thing is that these are areas that have been designated either by Congress or by the President of the United States. The President does have the, um, the power to designate a national monument. National parks have to be designated by Congress. And what that means is that that national park unit is operated by the National Park Service. Anything that is operated by the National Park Service has to comply with any type of federal laws that federal agencies have to follow. So, for example, anything that is done as far as construction, whether it's uh, indoors or outdoors, uh, facil facilities or outdoor areas such as camping, trails, picnic areas, uh, scenic overlooks, Anything along those lines, fishing, boating, any of those opportunities come in under the 
uh, Architectural Barriers Act. We must follow federal standards. Mm -hmm. It also means on the programmatic side that we have to follow standards that relate to the 1973 Rehabilitation Act as amended, and that would be Section 504 and Section 508. Both of uh, those address audio description. 508, well, 504 talks about having effective communication, and we need audio description in order to effectively communicate. And 508 tells us some of the requirements uh, where Section 508 and audio description comes into play in terms of how do you develop audio uh, description? What is the criteria that comes in in order to have effective communication? State and local parks are under the ADA, under um, Titles Two or Title Three, along with uh, also private uh, parks. And their regulations are not quite as stringent as we have under the federal government. And, Michelle, I'm going to ask you a question that, that you and I have also talked about in the past. Um, are, are ACB members, their friends and their families, if they were to visit a park and they're, they're beginning to plan their visit, beginning to put it together, um, what are some of the things that, that uh, they need to keep in mind to ensure that the visit would be a success? And then the other part of the question is, What's plan B? What happens if something goes awry and, and how are obstacles overcome? So uh, can you, uh, could we talk about that a little bit, please? Sure. So um, I think planning is key for everything. Now, just that I am a big planner, so, um, and, and Ray and, and Brett know that about me. Um, I pr probably plan too much, but um that, so that's part of my response, plan, plan, and plan again. Um, so the first thing I would do um, in planning for any National Park Service visit is if you do not have one, make sure you get an America the Beautiful Pass. It's the access pass under the federal recreation land, America the Beautiful um, Pass program. Denise, do you have a pass? I do. Yep, awesome. I do. And I know that a bunch of people um, who visited Harper's Ferry National Historical Park and the Harper's Ferry Center a couple of years ago, um, uh, staff from ACB, yourself, and um, and board members, um, uh, some of you had passes. Um, if people don't have passes, please reach out to other folks in ACB. You could also just simply do an internet search for America the Beautiful National Park Pass. It should come up. And that provides you with access um, to our national parks. Um, it, it's a waiver of um, the entrance fees. Um, and other um, federal lands also participate. So if they have fees um, and they're participating, they would you would be eligible to, to get that fee waived. Um, so, so that's the first thing I would do. Um, then secondly, I would go ahead and um, Brett's talked about UniD. We have a UniD app, mobile application. We've audio described over 100 brochures. Um, so that's about a quarter of the parks um, um, in the National Park Service system. 
go ahead and, and see if the park you want to visit is in the Unity app. Those brochures are a snapshot of, um, of what makes that park special. Um, it tells, gives you an overall sense of the history of the park and why it's there. The brochure also provides information on what to do, where to go, what to experience. And as Brett talked about too, there's, there's always a map of the park, which um, we've done a lot of research on how to effectively describe those maps. And, and those, those descriptions are complex and multi-layered um, and organized to tell you everything um, that's presented in the map. And I know in one of our um, descriptathon training workshop experiences, uh, one of Brett's graduate assistants and, and researchers talked about um, how she used that map to plan a trip with, um, with her husband. And she had never been able to really equally plan um, right with him um, because she could not engage in the same way and see the map. So the description provided her with a wonderful planning tool. So I definitely check out to see if, if the, the park you want to visit is um, has a brochure that's been described. I'd also go ahead onto the nps.gov website and um, check out the park's website. So typically if you Google the name of the park, do a web search for the name of the park, um, it should come up. You could also go to the main nps.gov website and search uh, for the park that way. All parks are supposed to have an accessibility link under the plan your visit section. Now, um, as Ray said, there are 419 units of the National Park Service. We're a very decentralized organization. So I unfortunately um, don't have control over monitoring every one of those parks um, and different parts of the organization populate those pages. So I unfortunately can't guarantee that the information is up to date or is inclusive. But that's another good place to, to start. The third thing I would do in planning is just literally call the park. Um, typically, the person who answers the phone is the person who sits at the visitor center desk. And they answer questions in person and on the phone about what to do at the park, um, what's available, what the hours are, all of that. I would um, encourage you to share that you want to visit the park um, and you want to know what's available um, for, um, for visitors who are blind or have low vision. Through this panel, hopefully you have some ideas and some questions you can um, prompt them with, you know, things like, do you have a, a movie at your visitor center and is it audio described? How do I get that audio description? Do you have audio description of your um, exhibit? How do I get that audio description? Is it equipment that you give to me? Where do I find it? Um, I think later we might be talking about tactile, so you could prompt them about that. Um, you can ask them if, if you're a Braille reader, if they have a Braille version of the brochure or any other Braille within the exhibit. Um, you can also uh, talk to them about their service animal policy. Now, I, all service animals are allowed in our national parks. 
Um, on a rare occasion, there might be a restriction in a certain area, but I think you want to confirm, you know, is there any written policy of any places I can't go? Now, it is true that someone may not under, might not understand the requirement, um, and that's why I think it's important to spe specify, is there any written policy that is, um, of a place I can't um, bring my service animal so that they're, you know, you're aware and they're aware um, of what you're specifically asking. Um, I think that also when you're on the phone, um, you know, asking if, you know, if you're interested in a tour, if you're interested in a, a ranger perhaps providing some more description on a tour, um, I would also encourage you to ask, you know, tell them when you're coming to the park, maybe state, you know, I'm, I'm coming on this date, are there any rangers or employees that um, you can give me their names so that when I come, if there's any issues with equipment, um, you know, um, or I need some assistance, um, can you give me a couple of names if I run into any issues? So when you are at the park, if, as Denise said, you know, you need to come up with plan B, you've already had a conversation with folks, you already have the names of some people so that you can continue to have that conversation. Oh, well, I, you know, I spoke with so-and-so on the state. They said that you do have Braille brochures. Um, can, can you, you know, talk to that person or can I speak to someone else? Um, of course, if things go terribly, terribly wrong, and, and we hope they don't, but sometimes, you know, someone um, has left the park that you spoke with. Um, there could be a new volunteer or a new staff person on the desk who just hasn't been given the right information or knowledge to assist someone. You can certainly ask to speak with a supervisor. You could ask to speak with a superintendent. You could follow up with a letter to a superintendent. Um, and, you know, if, if necessary, on our NPS.gov website, there's a, um, a link at the very bottom of the page, the general page about accessibility. Um, and if you did want to reach out to the Park Service or um, an office where um, complaints can be received, you know, if, if you feel the need to go in that direction, that information is, is there as well. But I definitely encourage people to do some, some planning, ask questions in advance so you know it's available, and, and maybe get some names of some staff that you can follow up with while you're at the park. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, planning, planning, planning. That's me, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> Brett, I want to bring you in here to, uh, to pick up on Michelle's reference to the Unity Project and that you had uh, referred to earlier, of course. Uh, for, uh, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the app, could you describe it a bit more, um, that how it's downloaded, once it's downloaded, how it works, what, um, um, what would our listeners do to, to benefit from, um, from the app? I'd be happy to. Thank you for that opportunity. Uh, and I also want to connect back with something Ray said about the ability to scan and search and dive into things you're interested in. Um, our project has been closely aligned with ACB for several years, and we've done a lot of 
user testing and um, design changes based on those tests. And what we have built, we think, is a really um, easy system to navigate and also to, you know, scan, as, as Ray said. And I think that's um, that's just part of what we're trying to do. We're trying to create better descriptions. We're also trying to create the ability for people to get what they need quickly and dive down into it. So in short, um, in 2014, we were um, sent a box of brochures here, Michelle Hartley and uh, her colleagues uh, put uh, about 400 brochures or 350 or whatever it was into a box and sent it to us. And we've been trying to figure out how to make those uh, audible ever since. And um, I, I think it's, it's gets back to the idea of um, again, what Ray was saying and Michelle was saying that we want to create an experience that uh, is just as easy to use and just as, just as efficient and just as uh, robust and deep and powerful um, as any other system of communication within the park service. And we feel like um, this audio description we're creating is, is adding uh, new value to the discourse at the parks, not just new value for one person or one type of person, but new value period. And then this, um, in part is trying to break break down the stigma of audio description um, as an accommodation as opposed to audio description as a part of the media ecosystem that we all um, should expect. So what we're, we're trying to push against is the idea that special accommodation should be needed. We're trying to push the idea that um, when you go to a park, you, you, regardless of your level of vision, you should be able to participate in all activities and, and interact with all the media within the site, um, just like everybody else. The project itself is um, basically we have a website, which I gave the URL earlier, unidescription.org. We have um, a couple of free mobile apps for Android and iOS. And on the website, basically, we train people to uh, create better audio description, and we work a lot on um, on helping people learn about audio description and learn how to do it better. Uh, the website also has a an open access tool for producing and disseminating the descriptions. So that means that people can make it on this website and they can um, share it with others and they can share it with others in lots of different ways. They can share it through the mobile apps. They can share it through MP3 files. They can share it through HTML and text. And um, we want to, we want all that hard work that's been done by the MPS staff to make the description uh, easily accessible wherever you want to get it. If you don't want to get it through a mobile app, you can get it on the website. If you don't want to get it through the website, you can get it in, in, in through MP3s. If you want to get it through text, whatever it is, you, however you want it, whatever works best for you, we want to be able to um, give that to you. And um, and we also spend uh, time, I think, raising awareness within the Park Service about audio description and the audience for audio description. So when we have our descriptathons, which are like hackathons, um, except for they're focused on audio description instead of, um, pro, you know, creating computer programs. Um, we 
spent a lot of time just talking about uh, the need and uh, desire for more audio description in the parks. And we have many guests that come in from ACB and talk about their personal experiences, their professional experiences with audio description and how that makes a big difference. Um, so at the end of the training, we feel like the park staff has probably had a heightened awareness, although they may have be pretty, pretty aware already, but they might have a heightened awareness about media accessibility, especially for people who are blind or low vision. They'll have some practical skills in audio description. So not only can they work on these brochures and these brochure projects, but they also can um, take those skills and use our online and open access tools and apply those to wayside signs and exhibits and whatever else they're working on films. And, um, and basically we're, we feel like this is a, a systemic solution to inaccessibility in the sense that audio description can, prov- if, if we just, um, add it to everything as a part of our design process and, and make it just an ordinary aspect of it like captioning or whatever then it'll be destigmatized and it'll be uh, pervasively available and so in short our mission is um, audio describe the world we want to audio describe the whole world very very uh, small goal but um, <laughs> we, that's what we want to do one park at a time right <laughs> one brochure at a time <laughs> one brochure at a time yeah um, thank you Brett um, so now this question, uh, Michelle, I'm going to start with you on this question, but I know that Ray has done some work in this area as well. While not audio description, uh, a focus of what you are doing at Harper's Ferry is um, identification of tactile elements and, and making those elements accessible, for example, a tactile map. So I was wondering, Michelle, if you could talk a little bit about that aspect of your work. And then, Ray, I, I know you want to pick it up with some work that you've done uh, uh, with the Smithsonian. Sure. So um, so one thing I will say, even though we're talking about tactiles, we absolutely audio describe and want to audio describe those tactiles and do audio describe those tactiles. The audio description we do for tactiles is a little different um, in that, um, well, all the audio description we do for different mediums usually has, in different media types, usually has some unique qualities. So for tactiles, we want to provide some audio description that's actual, actually like cited guide technique about where to start within the tactile, how to move around the tactile as we're describing the tactile um, for you. But we do consider tactiles to be an important component of effective communication. So um, clearly with our brochures, which are print material, um, and they're static, they're not raised, um, they're flat. Um, you know, we want to audio describe the maps in those brochures, and we do that in detail. If you're at an exhibit um, in a visitor center, though, and there's a, a map that is just a two-dimensional um, image of a map, we absolutely want to make that map tactile because, um, you know, when I'm visually looking at a map, it's not a linear experience. I'm looking at the, at the map as a whole. I'm going, you know, forward and back and up and down and all around the map. So we want to... 
um, as Ray was saying earlier, create an equitable, equitable experience for people. And so in addition to having detailed audio description, we want people to be able to put their hands on the map so that they can explore it and go back to tactile reference points um, as they need to check and confirm where they're at in the map, what they want to look at next, et cetera. So tactile maps are a really important part of our exhibitions. Um, we also want to make sure in the tactiles we're producing that um, they're central to the stories and themes and resource that we're presenting, right? So um, we often joke, and, and Rhea said this a bunch, like, if, if the only thing in your exhibit that's tactile, um, an exhibit about the Revolutionary War, is a candlestick holder, we've probably missed effective communication, right? In that exhibit about the Revolutionary War, you may very well be talking about the weapons that were used and what's unique about the, those weapons. We may be talking about uniforms. We may be talking about um, um, the battle lines and formations that occurred. All of those things which are central to the story also need to be tactile, not just something that's common in every day that most people know or have a sense of, which is like a candlestick holder. So we try to create tactiles in our exhibits that are meaningful and central to our core stories. Um, a lot of the work that we're doing is for exhibits, and that also includes tactile floor plans of the exhibit area um, and, if appropriate, the visitor center so people can have a general orientation to the space as well. Um, so we're, we're getting more consistent with that in our indoor exhibits and in our outdoor exhibits. We're also um, creating some more tactile experiences on what we call waysides, which are basically exhibit panels that you will find um, on the side of a trail that explain a landscape, what used to be there. They might have a map. We're trying to encourage everyone to ensure that those things are um, that are that are relevant and need to be tactile are produced in in a tactile format. And I think that the technology is allowing us to do this a little more easily. Um, uh, even now, materials will break down in a number, you know, a couple of years if it's not bronze. But 3D printing is making it more easy to um, to reproduce these kinds of things. So those are some of our tactile experiences. Um, we're also, I, I do want to mention too that, you know, we try um, more and more to get user feedback. So as an example, when um, I met with some ACB folks at the Washington Monument in D.C., they were testing out the Washington Monument Unity brochure, but the park staff also gave them some prototypes of some tactile maps that are being done for the Jefferson Memorial. And just in that meeting alone, got some great confirmation and feedback on those tactile maps. Um, Ray Bloomer's been a part of the map development, so he provides his knowledge and skills as an accessibility specialist, um, his own perspective, but also uh, the broader perspective um, based on um, all of the experience he has had over the years. 
So we're talking a lot about tackles, um, and I know we're in the middle of a pandemic, um, so I'm going to pass the baton over to Ray to, to talk about those aspects of, of tackles and, and how we're addressing that today. Thank you, Michelle. Michelle and I have both been very, very involved in uh, the aspect of not only the development of tactile objects, but something that Michelle mentioned early in the uh, panel, and that's the importance of making sure that we are educating our planners and designers so that they realize the importance and the need for tactile objects. And one area that we've both had a pretty good uh, level of involvement with was with the Arch in St. Louis, the uh, the museum at the Arch in St. Louis. And I know that many uh, members of uh, uh, the American Council of the Blind have been able to go over there and experience that when the um, conference was held in St. Louis a couple of years ago. So uh, you you had an opportunity to see some of the tactile work that has been done by the National Park Service. And that was probably probably the one museum that has the most tactile pieces that were specifically developed uh, as tactile pieces to ensure that accessibility took place. But they were not specifically designed for people who were blind. They were specifically designed because that's what it takes for everyone, including people who are blind, to get the full experience. As Michelle just mentioned, we're in a pandemic and Touching is something that people are discouraging right now. And unfortunately, there are, there's a lot of conversation going on right now about reducing touching in museums. And uh, uh, yesterday I was on another panel specifically uh, that was sponsored by the Smithsonian the uh, Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, uh, the uh, Institute for Human-Centered Design. And the, the issue was COVID-19 and the tactile experiences. And it was looking at all the different issues that need to be considered as we go forward through and coming out of this pandemic. And something I pointed out while I was on that panel is having been involved in accessibility for more than 40 years, you all know we're the last ones in, and I don't want us to be the first ones out. So what the message that we wanted to make sure that we talked about yesterday was not reducing, not taking away uh, all of those aspects of uh, uh, tactile experience, but it was making sure that we evaluate it carefully that we make the decisions on a temporary basis because we're going through temporary experiences. This pandemic will not last forever. There will be ways to, number one, get a vaccine. Number two, uh, combat it through uh, technology or through the development of chemicals and cleaning devices and things like that that will enable people to be able to touch tactile objects, tactile interactives. The important thing to point out, and I think this is really, this came across very strongly in the panel yesterday, 
It's not what you touch. It's what you touch next. If you touch something and you wash your hands, you touch something and you sanitize, you're not moving uh, uh, elements of the virus from the object to your face. If you wash your hands before you touch your face, even if you're wearing gloves, if you touch something and touch your face, you're still moving the virus. The important thing is to make sure whatever you touch, you wash your hands, use sanitizer before you touch your face or go on to, to something else. And when I talked about the issue of people with disabilities being the last ones in, and we will not be the first ones out, it's to make sure that as those people that are involved in the planning and safety of museums, national parks, no matter what public venues uh, exist, is to make sure that we're looking at the facility as a whole. We're not focusing on the tackle pieces that may affect accessibility, but we have to look at everything, the doorknobs, the uh, handrails going up and down steps, the buttons in elevators. When you go through a cafeteria line in a museum or in a gift shop, that we're equally looking at everything and not just focusing on accessibility first. A secondary message, but it's actually a primary message, but it also, it, it also was a, a major component, is to make sure that everyone understands civil rights has not been reduced, eliminated, or suspended as a result of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. This pandemic, still people have to ensure that civil rights exist. So if perchance, Due to something and one area that, that was pointed out uh, uh, within the last several days, and that is how much more transmission and spreading of this disease takes place as a result of aerosol from people's mouths. And that if you have an exhibit that has any type of fans, blowers, anything like that, they're the ones that are probably the first ones that need to be eliminated whether they have something to do with accessibility or not. But if for any reason it's necessary to temporarily eliminate or, eliminate or block off an, an exhibit that is, provides tactile accessibility, we must make sure that we come up with an alternative because you cannot reduce accessibility. Yeah. So that's the major message okay. that, uh, that I think we need to make sure that we get across as we're going through the process of dealing with this pandemic. Thank you, Ray. Very helpful and, and obviously very timely. Um, Brett, I'd like to ask you uh, to pick up on, on the points that were just being made. Uh, a couple of things here. I know when you look at your planning for the Unity Project, you're thinking about those of us who, like myself, I've been blind since birth. There are those of us who have all have become blind at some point uh, during our lives. There are those of us who um, are vision impaired but have some, some vision. So in terms of uh, user feedback, 
would you talk to us uh, about that, the kind of feedback, the kind of information that helps you in your planning? And and then, of course, to pick up on, on any of the points that Michelle and Ray just made with regard to, to um, accessibility. Uh, I'd be happy to, and thank you. Those are, were that's an interesting uh, point Ray just brought up. Um, I, I'd say in every focus group we have, we um, get into these kinds of discussions about, you know, should we mention color or should we, you know, just the different things that, that different people would, would like to um, hear about or would not care to hear about. And to some degree, that is a subjective um, taste or flavor that um, I, I don't think I don't think there's such a thing as like one size fits all audio description. Um, what I'd say is there's what and what we aim for is is a generally helpful audio description that is useful to all types of people. Um, but I think there's a, a, a tremendous amount of opportunity for for studies and research into different types of audio description for different types of people uh, based on a level of vision or um, activity or whatever it is. And one of the one of the great aspects of digital media that I think is really promising in this field is that. Um, unlike analog media where you have, say, a paper brochure that's in a, a rack near the front door, um, you know, storing and printing and having um, a variety of those would be, would be complicated. But with digital media, you can actually um, parse out and make different versions, and, and you, have, you have essentially unlimited room to expand um, your offerings to fit different preferences or presentation styles. I mean, we could easily um, find that, say, a person who is uh, blind from birth uh, likes more of a narrative style than a person who um, became low vision uh, later in life or something like that. I mean, just depending on how we we studied it. And I, th I think how you can respond to that is not make, um, you know, uh, unlimited amounts of variations, but just to be aware that there are some preferences that are probabilities among different groups. And then could you um, build description that, fits those different um, preferences. And I think that's where we would like to go. It's, it's, um, I think it's, a, it's one of those frontiers that uh, when you look at, uh, for example, the work we've done on audio describing brochures in national parks, and we have completed you know, roughly 100 of those, and there's still roughly 300 more to go just to have the brochure done at every park. So the scale of that is um, pretty large. Uh, but I think once this system is uh, more developed and, and more accessible and more and used more often, and then other, of course, there are other systems too, but I think this, this kind of um, expansion of, of these ideas could very well allow for 
for those kinds of differences to emerge. Uh, I guess that was a long way of me saying that we haven't spent a lot of time studying that in an empirical way, but that we are definitely aware that that exists. And it gets, it's, some of it is personal preference, but I think there's also clustering of, of um, needs and interests in, by demographic groups. So I think that there are places that we could really um, improve audio description by thinking about it that way. Thank you, Brett. And you know, yeah. Hi, this is Joel. Joel. I know there's only a few, there's only just a few minutes left. I know you want to take some questions. I I wanted to jump in and simply mention two things quickly, if I may. Sure. The um, this is Joel Snyder, uh, Dr. Joel Snyder, and I'm the director of the Audio Description Project. The project has had just such great good fortune to be working closely with the Park Service over the years. And I want to mention that in 2012, uh, the National Park Service received one of our achievement awards just overall for all the good work they've done. Last year, in 2019, Dr. Oppegaard uh, received our Research and, and Development award, Achievement Award. And this year, she's too, modest to ad- <laughs> she's too modest to admit it, but to mention it, but Michelle Hartley is this year's Museum's Achievement Award winner. So bravo to, to all of you in the Park Service. The other thing I want to mention is that we have been playing uh, – some audio-described tours on the ACB Radio Treasure Trove channel, and many of them will be archived and available as podcasts. Podcasts, But tomorrow, for instance, at 3 o'clock, uh, audio-described tour of the Wright Brothers National Memorial Visitor Center. At 4.30, the Star-Spangled Banner exhibit at the Smithsonian's uh, National Museum of American History. At 5 o'clock, the Natchez Trace Parkway. And then on Friday, uh, there's all kinds of... The Klondike Gold Rush Museum at 4 o'clock on Friday. So tune in to ACB Radio, the Treasure Trove Channel, and uh, you'll be able to experience some of these audio-described tours. And, Joel, your program on uh, Friday at 3 on quality control. Of That's right. How how producers hire describers, writers, uh, voice talents, and audio editors. Well, we are uh, interestingly when when we had our planning call, my my fabulous panel, and I had our planning call. We knew we'd put together more questions than we're going to be able to use. But uh, I do want to take some listeners' questions. But before I do that, I want to thank you to uh, to. Brett and Michelle and Ray, you're wonderful. You make my life very easy. It's very easy to moderate you guys. Um, I, I would like to say before we open it up to questions, let me just ask if, if um, any of the three of you have any either closing comments or questions that you might want to pose before we move into to listener questions. So, um, Ray, I'll start with you. And in closing, okay. Yeah, I think the most important thing is that uh, people who are blind, people that have low vision, have equal opportunity. And I I like the way uh, uh, Brett said it in uh, his opening remarks, and that is that uh, parks are there for everyone, and everyone should have the opportunity. And it's not just because people with disabilities need to have those opportunities. People who are blind and have low vision are parents, their aunts and uncles, their brothers and sisters, their grandparents. They need to be able to share their park experience with 
their family members and their friends. Mm-hmm. And if the parts are not accessible to them, it's not accessible to that whole family unit. So all of the things that we talked about are important to make sure that it is a full, inclusive experience for everyone. Great. And Brett, same. any closing comment? Yeah, it's a great uh, point, and I will just add to it that um, I hope people support what they want to uh, have. So if, if this audio description is being created then please listen to it and give it a try and give feedback and go to the parks and uh, be involved in committees or volunteer groups or just be regular visitors if you if you want um, if you if you want a, a park to respond and and be open then I think one of the best ways to get that to happen is to be present and um, you know uh, it, in, in the mind of the people running the, the park and they think about their audiences as the people they encounter every day. And um, the more you can, uh, I think, be involved and, and, and engaged in, in your local park or the park service in general, I think the better that is for uh, the future of audio description. And Michelle, a closing comment? Yeah, just to build on that, uh, I hope you visit our parks. I hope you ask for audio description. You know, before I started to work with Ray, um, and then um, as as an extension of the work I do with members of the local West Virginia ACB chapter out there, Wahoot, all of you guys, and then all the other chapters that have welcomed me in, I had very limited, actually no experience really, interacting with people who are blind. There are Park Service staff who work in remote communities, they may have never met someone who is blind, and they have this equipment that they've never used or had to hand to someone. Um, So the more people who get out there and ask for audio description and use audio description, um, the more people will understand how critical and important it is, and then they get a little practice along the way so that they're, they're comfortable, they know what it is, they know why it's there. Um, there's a lot of audio description opportunity out there. I, I know it's not always consistent. But um, I love the National Park Service, and part of the reason why I love this work is because I want to share the system with everyone um, and make sure they feel welcome to go to their park. So, so there's a saying in the National Park Service to get out there and find your park. Um, I, there are parks in cities, out in, um, in rural areas, um, natural history parks, cultural history parks. There's a park for everyone, and I, I hope you all explore them. Thank Great. you. And, and thanks for the kind words as well. Yeah, of course. Well deserved. And Katie, are you with us? Can you help us with with some hands if you see any raised? Or if there well, any it raised? is five forty five, so um, I think we are going to have to um, end. I, I do have the closing CEU code to give, though. Okay. Um, but, but we are at the at the time to uh, end our meeting, unfortunately. Um, but that that closing CEU code for those who are registered to receive those is zero. The letter B as in Braille three seven one. Again, that's zero. The number zero. The letter B as in Braille three seven one. 
And if anyone does, does have any questions that they need to, um, to ask, um, uh, certainly send me an email and I can pass it on to the Park Service, uh, ddecker5103 at gmail.com. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, panel. Thank you very much. And thank you. Thank you, listeners. Yes, thank you, everyone. And congrats again to Michelle. That was a wonderful honor. Thank you. And thank you, all of you, for, for all your work and assistance through the years. Thanks, Denise. Great panel. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thanks to you guys.